Well, thank you, Chris and team. I don't think you can ever go wrong with singing the gospel. Amen? That's what we just did. We sang the gospel. Well, it's always a privilege and a joy for me to preach when Ken is not here. You can be praying for Ken and his family as I think they're driving back to Texas today. So we appreciate the opportunity for him and his family to get a break, time away as family. This morning, I'm going to be teaching from Psalm 130. It was October 2015 when Shelley first began having symptoms, eye problems, dizziness, headaches. I can remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting in a park in the city of Tirana in the country of Albania where we were living and working and ministering. The girls were doing a fun run because running is not fun. I was sitting in a chair in the middle of the park watching them run for fun. And I remember my wife setting up the chair and she was stumbling and I thought maybe it was because of the uneven ground there in the park. In Albania, a park is just like a forest. <laughs> it's not like park like we think of park. And she's like, honey, my, my eyes are hurting and I, I'm having trouble seeing and I have this pain. We had no idea where this journey to diagnose the cause of these symptoms would take us. In fact, it wasn't enough to simply give her a new pair of glasses, a cane, and some baby aspirin with a Motrin. I mean, I remember thinking, honey, it'll be fine. Just go to the eye doctor. You probably need new glasses. I remember thinking that as she was talking about it. Because treating the symptoms only helped for the short term, doesn't it? Certainly didn't cure the problem. At first, they thought it was MS. They thought it was some kind of autoimmune disease. It took weeks and weeks of tests, visits, scans, and examinations before the doctors were able to confidently diagnose the source. My wife had a brain tumor. And at that time, we still didn't even know what kind of brain tumor it was because the MRI couldn't tell us that. So we had to wait for months more. And then they did the surgery. They removed the tumor. And it wasn't even until we got the biopsy report back that we understood there was a tumor. It was non-cancerous. And we knew what it was. That was what was causing all of these symptoms See, whenever we encounter medical situations like this, we understand something. We know that the symptoms bring much pain, don't we? They bring affliction for which we hope to get relief. I mean, who wouldn't want relief from those symptoms? But ultimately, we hope to correctly diagnose and treat whatever disease or condition is the source of those symptoms. Hope comes not only through pain management, but ultimately in finding the cure and removing the source of the problem. And really, it's no different for us as Christians if you think about this. We know that we are fallen people living in a fallen world, anything this side of Genesis 3, where many of our afflictions, many of our problems can be directly tied to sin. If you think about it, it's tied to either our sin or someone else's sin, maybe they're sinning against me, or maybe it's just simply living in a fallen world. I mean, think about Shelley's tumor. Did she have a tumor because of her sin? Some of you are like, well, Chris, maybe it was your sin. That's why it was, was God's affliction. Those of you who know me, you're like probably, well, maybe there's some truth to that. Is that why she had a brain tumor? Was it my sin? No. It's just living in a fallen world because of sin, the general effect that we call the noetic effect of sin on humankind. Before the fall, there were no tumors. There were no conflict issues. There was no chronic pain. There were no angry eyebrows. Guys, you ever get angry eyebrows from your wife? You're like, yeah, this morning. They were angry. Think about that. No marital conflict no lying, no need for it. No stealing, no need for it. No guilt, no shame. Before the fall, there was only peace, 
harmony, unity, as all of creation lived under God and for his glory. Today, sin and its damaging effects are all around us. Do I need to prove that to you? Just turn on the news. And sadly, many today feel helpless in the lowest depths of despair. We live surrounded by people who feel helpless and hopeless. Well, this morning, I want to briefly walk through what I think is one of the most encouraging and beloved psalms of the Psalter in Psalm 130. If you're not there yet, go ahead and turn to Psalm 130. I think this psalm provides for us both the diagnosis and the cure for us to biblically deal with sin and its symptoms. And before I jump into it, let me give you a little bit of context for this psalm. In fact, the title is Hope in the Lord's Forgiving Love, A Song of Ascents. Psalm 130 is one of what is referred to as one of the penitential psalms. When you think of penitence, what do you think of? Someone coming and asking for forgiveness. The psalm, the author is unknown, but because it's labeled a song of ascents in the Hebrew text that's actually in there, it means that Israel would probably use it to confess their sin, to seek God's forgiveness as they made their way up the hill in Jerusalem to the sanctuary to worship God. So it was a song that they would sing to themselves as they were ascending the hill to get right with God before they would enter the temple to worship God. And I believe that this psalm is one of the best Old Testament explanations that salvation comes not by work, not by works, but by grace on the basis of Christ's redeeming work. So follow along with me as the psalmist brings us on his own personal journey from helplessness to hope in God. And our outline is simple, as you'll see it right from the text. We're going to see the psalm, psalmist's journey from his cry to the psalmist's wait to the psalmist's hope. So let's look at this first point, the psalmist's cry in verses 1 to 4. Just want to warn you, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 1 to 4. Some of you are going to be wondering, when is he going to get to verse 5? We are not having lunch today. Don't worry. It's by design. Let me read Psalm 130, verses 1 to 4. The psalmist cry. The psalmist says this, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But... There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Notice the psalmist begins in verse 1, out of the depths I have cried to you. This, this word for, for depth in Hebrew is specifically referring to being caught in deep, dangerous, treacherous waters. Again, the deep waters were terrifying. Think about most of Israel. What were they? Land-faring people. And even when they were on a sea or an ocean, it was, it was along the coast. So the thought of getting caught in deep and treacherous waters, let alone falling into them, would be terrifying. We see this word throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 69, verses 1 to 2 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in the deep waters. There's our word. The deep waters. And a flood overflows me. In fact, even Jonah in chapter 2 used this. He's speaking to God from the belly of the fish, and he says, you cast me into the deep. Many of you know my family had the chance to go back to California last week. And for anybody who knows me, I grew up playing volleyball and surfing. In fact, I missed a third of my college because I was playing volleyball and surfing. So what do you think I did last week? I, I surfed. Come on, what do you think I am, crazy? Only had enough energy for one, not both. I was surfing with my friends. The waves were like three to five foot, which when I was in the prime of my life, that was fine. But now in this state, which thankfully the podium's hiding me, after two weeks of vacation, it's wide, that's good. I was out of shape. I'm out there surfing and I'm remembering times when I went surfing as a kid, 19 year old, nothing could kill me. 
double overhead waves. They were, they were probably about like 12, 13 feet. Paddle out, catch my first wave, thinking I'm going to ride this wave. Someone's surely taking video of this surfing magazine. Here I come, only to find my board gets sucked up and I am plunged down into the deep, tossed like a rag doll. I start swimming. I'm running out of breath. What am I doing? I'm panicking, only to realize I'm swimming the wrong direction. It's getting darker and darker because what happens when you swim down? It gets dark in the deep. In fact, if it weren't for my surfboard, which was attached to my ankle with a leash, I reached around and felt it, and I was swimming the opposite direction of my board. Turned around, bolted for the surface, only to break, (gasps) and what happens? Another huge wave pummels me, and I repeat the process. Four times that happened. By the time I was done, I literally crawled to the sand, laid there, and kissed the sand and said, God, thank you. I almost died. Are the deeps terrifying? Yes. You're like, man, we praise the Lord for Galveston, that nice shallow (laughs) gulf that we have. This is the picture of the deep. Scary, it's dark, it's treacherous. And this is where the psalmist is calling from. He says what? I have cried. The perfect tense of this Hebrew verb cry indicates the psalmist had been crying and was continuing to cry. Why is that important? Because this isn't just some thing that popped up today. This has been an ongoing issue in his life and it's still going on. It's unresolved. He's crying. He has cried. And who does he cry to? Out of the depths I have cried to, what does your text say? You, O Lord. He cries out from the depths to the only one who can truly rescue him, God. Now, I don't know about your version, your translation of your Bible. Most English translations, look at the caps of O Lord. What is it? All caps. Most of our Bible translations have that. That is a way that the translator has cued us, the English reader, because most of us don't speak Hebrew, to know that this is the proper name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb to be. So Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? What does God say? Tell them Yahweh. I am sent you. What's in a name? I am When was God? Answer, he was God, he is God, and what? Will be God. Isn't that amazing? What's in a name? Who is he crying out to? Yahweh, save me, all-powerful, sovereign God of all creation. And then in verse 2, what does he say? Lord, is that all caps in verse 2? No. It's a different word for, it's a different name. Adonai, meaning Lord or Master. So even in this psalm, he's crying out, he's recognizing, he's calling God by his different names because in the depths of his trouble, he's recognizing God to you and you alone. I look to for help. Now think about this. Who do we call when we are in a true emergency? You're in an emergency. You pick up the phone, you dial it. Domino's Pizza, how can we help you? Uh, yeah, there's a guy trying to break into my house with a shotgun. Can I get two large pepperoni pizzas, please? Maybe one with anchovies. I'm thinking about the ocean for some reason. Is that who you call? Who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters, that's fiction, that's a movie. Who are you going to call? 911. Why? Because they are the people who are trained, equipped, committed, dedicated to being able to help you and solve the problem that you face. You call 911. You call the people that can help you. God is the psalmist's refuge. Notice this isn't self-help. If you go to the Christian bookstore down in the woodlands, you know what you'll find? A whole section called Christian self-help. Think about that. Where do we go to for help? Self. I'm going to fix this myself. 
I'm going to learn a 12-step process to be able to stop doing that and start doing this. It's not about God. It's about me pulling myself up from my bootstraps and being a better Christian. Oh, I know. I'm going to turn to church. I'm going to become more religious. I'm going to do more religious things. Is that the solution? Is that where the psalmist cries out to? Is it found inward? Oh, maybe it's found externally. I'm going to change my behavior. We call that behavior modification. I'm just going to change what I'm doing in the hopes that that will fix this and resolve this scenario. Is that where he goes to for help? Who does the psalmist cry out to? His refuge, Yahweh, Adonai, help me. Now it's important for us to understand what causes the author to cry out to God from this dark and depressed place of sorrow. Now some commentators have suggested that it's just suffering, it's trials, it's just general tough times. Others have said maybe it's persecution. They're, they're being persecuted, and so they're crying out from a position of persecution. But as we saw from verses in 3 to 4, I don't think the context suggests any of that. I think that the context of this psalm, he is crying out because of his own sin. The guilt and shame of his sin. The context of this psalm seems to, to indicate a focus on that, and that can only be addressed through confession and forgiveness from a living loving and forgiving God. It's the picture of a man being overwhelmed by his own personal sin, submerged in a sea of guilt. That's the picture that we find the psalmist crying out from. John Owen writes this. He says, he cries out under the weight and waves of his sins. Sin is the disease. Affliction, only a symptom of it. I agree with John Owen well, is this biblical? Is this a biblical concept? Well, think about it. The, the psalm that I read earlier in Psalm 32.10, what does it say? Many are the sorrows of the what? Say it like you mean it. I'll come down there. I will. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Why is that true? Why do the wicked have many sorrows? What defines a wicked person? Sin, wickedness, living life opposite of how God says. What defines the characteristics of a wicked person? Unrepentant, unconfessed sin. They just continue to say, God, no, not your way, my way. And what happens when they live opposite of what God says? The wages of sin is death, pain, trouble, sorrow, conflict, there are consequences when we live any other way but God's. And that's why it doesn't say there's a few sorrows. What does it say? There are many sorrows for the wicked. In fact, Proverbs 13, 15 says something very similar. The way of the treacherous is hard. You want to live your way, a treacherous life, on the broad way leading to damnation and death? Go ahead, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be treacherous, hard, filled with sorrow because that's what sin brings. Some of you are like, well, I'm not convinced. Well, let's flesh this idea out even more. Who is the only person in the Bible that was called a man after God's own heart? A man after God's own heart, King David. The only person in the whole scripture who was called a man after after God's own heart, I think it was in Acts 13, 22, it's referenced. Second Samuel chapter 11 talks about his greatest sin. Second Samuel 11, I don't have time to read this whole section, but I at least want to read some parts of it. Second Samuel 11, you probably know this story, you've probably heard it before. Look at verse 1, Second Samuel 11, 1. It says, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and they besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. You see anything wrong in this first verse? During springtime, where were the kings supposed to be? Leading their armies. That was part of being a king. Where was David? Back home sending his number two out to fight in his place. Such a seemingly small sin. 
Again, is any sin small? No. Such a seemingly small thing that David did, instead of leading, where was he back home? Led to an evening where he, what? Verse 2, saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance, like dominoes. Staying home when he should have been to war, being up, looking, lusting, and then what did he do? One sin led to another. I call this the cumulative effects of sin. The cumulative effects of sin. One sin, unconfessed, leads to another. And to get out of that, what do we do? We sin more to get out of that. And what do we do? Well, now it's getting bad. So I really have to lie or deceive or steal or do whatever it takes. So what do I do? I sin more and I sin more. And what happens to the cumulative effect of sin in your life? And this isn't just unbelievers. This is for you and me as Christians. What does David do? Lust in the mind leads to adultery. He says, who is that woman? It's Bathsheba. He says, go and bring her to me. He commits adultery with her. What happens? She gets, what? Pregnant. Now he's really stuck. I mean, if it was just adultery, he could have covered it up. Now she's pregnant. So what does he do? Bring her husband Uriah back from the front. He gets him drunk. Go back to your wife. Uriah, because he was a man of integrity, said, how can I sleep with my wife when all of my comrades are fighting Noah and he slept on the door? David's like, oh, didn't get him drunk enough. Does that sound like a Christian godly thing to do? What's driving this? Fear of God? What's driving this? Fear of being caught. So what does he do? You would have thought, okay, David, you gave it your best shot. Call it quits. Confess it. Plead for mercy. What does he do? In this whole time, what is happening? How is he sinking further and further into the depth of his sin? Further and further, what does he do? He goes to Joab, writes a letter, says, okay, I'm sending him back to the front. Go to the part where the battle is the fiercest, where the enemies are coming at. Put Uriah on the front, and right when the battle is the worst, withdraw all the enemies so that he is killed by the enemy. What did David do? He murdered Uriah. This is a man after God's own heart. Murdered Uriah. Uriah is killed on the battlefield. David writes a letter saying, hey, don't feel bad. It was my command. Bathsheba hears, she mourns. After the time of mourning, it says at the end of chapter 11, when the time of mourning was over in verse 27, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But then notice at the very end of verse 27, God comments on how he feels about this. Notice what it says. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Does that surprise you? It was evil in the sight of the Lord. And where is David in the depths of his sin? Now, what happens in chapter 12? Come on, we're a Bible church. We know what happens. Beginning of chapter 12, what happens? Who does God send? The prophet Nathan to do what? Rebuke and confront David. And to David's credit, what does he do? He hears the story, you have all these sheep, this little poor guy has one sheep. Instead of eating one of your sheep, you go and you take his one sheep and you kill it. And David says, that man should be punished. And, and then Nathan says, that man is you. You took Uriah's wife, you killed him. And David repents to his credit. Have you ever wondered what happened between chapter 11 and chapter 12? Think about that. What happens between chapter 11 and chapter 12? Now, I'm no rocket science, scientist, but I think it takes time for a baby to be born. Ladies, how long? Nine months. How much time progressed between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12? Do we know? We don't. We know at least it was how many months? <laughs> at least nine from the time when they committed adultery until the time when the baby was born. We know it was at least that long. Some think it was maybe 18 months. 
And during this whole time, what is David doing with his sin? What is he doing? Turn to Psalm 32. Let me reread this text now with some context. Back to Psalm 32. Again, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are psalms that we believe David wrote in connection with his sin. So now with that in context, think of Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Can you hear David saying that? What had he done to his sin for nine to 18 months? He covered it. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whose spirit there is no deceit. Was there deceit in David's life? Yes, for how long? Months. This is a man after God's own heart. And then we get to verse three. When I kept silent about my sin, how long did he keep silent? Months. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He covered his sin. He was silent. He probably was not eating properly. He probably had trouble sleeping, sleeplessness. He was miserable. Is sin fun? Yes. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Sin is very fun. For how long? How long? For a moment. For that transitory moment when you're enjoying the pleasure of the forbidden fruit, you're filled with joy and happiness and contentment. And then when it's done, what do you feel, Christian? Shame, guilt, hopefully conviction. Groaning all day long. For all these months when David was holding it in, do you think he was happy? And every day that went by where he kept it covered, he kept sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of his shame and his guilt and his sin. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, God. What does that mean? Like a vice. Was God done with David? No, it's a great reminder, no matter how deep in your sin you are, you are redeemable. Did you hear that? There's forgiveness. God was being gracious with David. The, vi the vice on his heart, the conviction, David knew it was wrong. God's hand was heavy upon him. His vitality, he was literally drained Lifeless, one might say. Turn over to Psalm 51. We could have read this psalm this morning also. Psalm 51. Look at verse 3 again. This one is accredited a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This psalm we know was written right after Nathan confronted David. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. When you sin, when I sin, and we don't immediately confess it, what happens to that sin? Does it just go away? I mean, are you able just, just to sin and forget? I, I just sin and forget. No, what, what happens? It begins to replay. You begin to think about it. You're like, okay, what if I get caught? Or, or what if I do it again? Or, or what if I get tempted again? Or how, how will I face it? Or or what will I do if I continue? Is there hope? What if I live the rest of my life just struggling with this sin? And you begin to replay it. And it's kind of like a washing machine. And these thoughts come in and they bounce around. And your sin is ever before you. You ever experience that? I call it killer butterflies. I, I have a physical sensation of stress in the pit of my stomach when I have unconfessed sin in my life. I believe that's God's grace. His spirit convicting me. And do you think that affects my physical body? What happens when we have stress in our heart and life? Ulcers, all kinds of things, insomnia. There are physical effects to unconfessed sin. David, I think, was experiencing some of that. Do you think David experienced depression and consequences? Yeah. Look at verse 8, Psalm 51. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Rejoice. 
I don't have time to walk us through this, but throughout the Old Testament, when bones are used, it's typically referring to health, to someone's well-being. So when bones are broken, what is that a symbol of? I don't think God literally physically broke David's bones. It's a symbol of what? Was David healthy? How was his state of well-being in this period of months of unconfessed sin when he covered sin on his own by lying and being deceitful? How did it make him feel? Horrible. He's crying out to God, God, they're broken. Heal me, please. David was in deep. Now, I recognize that sometimes we are in the deep because of someone else's sin. I realize that. It's not always my sin where I'm in the deep. And sometimes it could be just the noetic effect of sin. It could be, I just found out I have cancer, a genetic disorder, or I only have three months to live, and I'm struggling with these things. I recognize that. But often, at least I'm speaking for myself, when I'm in the deep of affliction, oftentimes it's because of my own sin. Because even if it is your sin against me or something in my body, I don't always respond right. And like David, my sinful responses to circumstances, they don't make me feel better. Maybe in the moment I feel better, but how do they make me feel? If I sin to get out of sin, does that ever work well? Never. It makes me feel worse. And if, like David, I try to fix those circumstances with more sinful responses, what's the result? Sinking deeper and deeper under the waves of guilt and shame. More sin, more deceit, more fear, more anxiety, more pain, more sleeplessness, more bad feelings, until you get to the point where you say, I don't know if I can take what? It anymore. You ever met someone like that? Maybe you've looked in the mirror and realized that was you. The way of the treacherous is hard because the wages of sin is death. And at times, the symptoms themselves can feel overwhelming, the consequences of our sin. I mean, Shelley understood her dizziness, her eye trouble, her headaches were troublesome. But until we got to the root of the problem, treating symptoms didn't make them go away. If sin is the root problem, then we must follow the example of the psalmist. And you must cry to God as your refuge. God, hear me, save me, help me. Just like David did and just like the psalmist here in Psalm 130. You see, back in Psalm 130, the psalmist recognizes that God and God alone can make the wrong right. And this is why the psalmist cries out to God through prayer. Now, it's possible in a group this size, there may be some of you here this morning that you know exactly what the psalmist is saying. Maybe you're in the depths of sin. Maybe you wonder how a holy God could really rescue you from the depths of your sin. You're like, Chris, you don't understand. You don't understand how deep I am. You don't understand how long this has been going. You don't understand the gravity of my sin. Maybe you wonder, does he really hear? Does he really care? When you find yourselves in the depths of despair, feeling helpless because you are troubled by your sin and transgression, I implore you, I plead with you to do what the psalmist does. There's only one place to turn for help, and that is the Lord. Not inward self-help, not behavior modification, not morality. My great concern with the American church we are a very moral church. What do I mean by that? We do the right things on the outside. And my fear is that there is hypocrisy on the inside. Morality is simply doing the right things, not necessarily for the right reasons. That's not what the psalmist does here in Psalm 130. We must humble ourselves. We must cast ourselves down before God and ask him for help. That was verse one. Let's go to verse two. I warned you. Verse two, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The psalmist not once but twice cries out to be heard by God as only hope. This is, again, ongoing. He doesn't give up. 
It's the picture of a broken servant clamoring for a positive hearing from his master. Adonai, Adonai, my Lord, my master, I know I failed you. I know I let you down. His confession of sin is not some half-hearted, mumbled attempt at reconciliation. Well, I'm sorry I I blew it again. Uh, I'm sorry I hurt you and I made you feel bad. Uh, I'm sorry I did that again and I'm going to try really hard not to do it again. That's not what this is. It's an urgent cry of brokenness, longing to be heard and cleansed. He knows, he understands just how wicked he is and how desperately he needs his Lord. It's as if the psalmist is saying, hear me, answer me, save me. Hear me, O God, answer me, save me. Why is he this aware of his sin? Well, what does verse three say? If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Question mark. What's the answer, church? If God would begin to mark our iniquity, what does mark mean? Literally to observe or keep a record of. Again, we just sang it in the song. If God were to do that, which of us could stand before a holy and righteous God? Answer? None. Because the verse that Chris quoted in Romans 3, how many are righteous on the earth? The God looks down upon the earth, how many are righteous? There is no, not one. None are righteous, none seek after God, all seek after their own end, their own delight. For all have sinned and fallen, what? Short, Romans 3, 23, of the glory of God. And what is the standard? What does Matthew 5, 48 say? Be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is God's perfection. Paul says in Romans that all of us, all have fallen short of that standard of perfection. One little sin. Again, is any sin little? No. One respectable sin that you and I commit and what have we done? Fallen short. Damned. The psalmist knows he could never stand before God's holy scrutiny. Some of you are saying, well, does he really see me? Does he really see all of my sin? Look at Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, 13. This verse is actually a little terrifying if you think about it. Hebrews 4, 13, you can keep your finger in Psalm 130. Hebrews 4, 13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is no creature hidden from his sight. What does that mean? He sees all of us. He sees what we do in private. He sees what we do in public. And it doesn't stop there. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He doesn't just see what we do. He sees what? Why? All things are open and laid bare. He sees your motive. He knows your attitude. When you dropped your offering into our offering box in the back of one of the rooms. He knew why you did that, your motive. When you took the trash out because your wife has been asking you for days to take the trash out, kid. Son, take the trash out. Okay. He knew your heart and your attitude and your motive. He sees all things. He sees what you do in public, what you do in private, and he knows why you do it. Who could stand before a holy, righteous God? The psalmist knows if he were to keep record of our sins, not one. But sadly, how often are we just like the Pharisee in Luke 18.11? You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Luke 18.11, you remember this story? Jesus tells the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. Remember what the Pharisee does? He goes up to worship through prayer. He stands before God and in Luke 18, 11, this is what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I mean, you can just see him going, God, this tax collector. Man, what a good guy. He's righteous. As if God is happy with him because of all the terrible things he doesn't do. God, look at how good I am. I'm not as bad as them. And then in verse 12, what does he begin to list? 
Well, that's not good enough. He really wants to show his heart. He starts to talk about all the good things that he does do. He says, I fast and I I tithe. It's as if he's saying this, I'm not that bad and I'm better than most. I'm not that bad and (laughs) I'm better than most. as if that cancels out the enormity of his sin. What standard is he using? What standard of righteousness is he using? A sinner comparing himself to sinners. Is that the standard God uses? What's the standard God uses? Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not one is righteous. And I fear this is the American Christian today. We are this religious Pharisee. We come into church and we think, well, thank God I'm not that bad. And I'm actually better than most. Because then in verse 9, this, Jesus basically tells us why he's telling this story. He told the story to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's the the reason why Jesus is telling this story. Self-righteous people comparing themselves to others. But in comparison, what does the tax collector say in verse 13? Verse 13, it says, unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven while beating his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not even willing to look up to God. Why? Because he's so aware of his unworthiness and his sin. He's grieving. The proud, self-righteous who cloak, ignore it, excuse their sin versus the humble who see it rightly, confess it, and cry out for mercy from the only one who is able to save them from their sin. And which one are you? Which one are you this morning? Do you come to church this morning self-righteous, saying, I'm not as bad as them, and I'm certainly better than most? Or do you come this morning beating your breast, saying, God, forgive me, have mercy upon me, a sinner, Because in verse 14, Jesus warns us that the one who exalts himself will be humbled. Now, some of you might be saying, Chris, okay, I know you're a trained biblical counselor and everything, but when I'm feeling depressed and sad, the last thing I want to do is think more about what caused all of it, right? Have you ever felt that way? The last thing I want to do is replay the sin. The last thing I want to do is think about it or examine it. It just makes me more depressed. Think of the logic behind that. My wife has a tumor. Thinking about the tumor, the cause of all these symptoms, just makes us both feel really sad. So instead of dealing with the tumor, we're going to go home without any further treatment, and we're going to pretend to go on, and we're going to treat the symptoms. Does that sound logical to you? Or even better, get this. Okay, it makes me really sad. So we're not just going to try to get by. We're actually going to run to something else as a refuge. So let's put our heart into our business. Or, or, or let's, I'm going to really get physically fit. I mean, I have a tumor in my brain, but I'm going to really get physically fit. Or, or, or it's going to be about alcohol. I'm going to run to alcohol as my refuge. Or, or I'm going to run, you know, this relationship with my wife or my husband's just not working for me. So I'm going to, going to try to go to another relationship outside of marriage, and I'm going to find satisfaction there. Or, you know, this whole waiting for, for a spouse, I'm single, I've been single, I'm just going to explore and find it there. And to deal with those symptoms, what do we do? We run to something else as a refuge hoping that's going to satisfy the desires of our heart. If sin is the cause of why we're in the deep, why we're discouraged, why we're, we're depressed, why we're anxious, 
if sin is the cause, then we must confess it. We must cry out to God for mercy. I just want you to ask you to do something this morning. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or stand up or write anything down, but in your own heart and mind, would you do a self-evaluation on you? How aware of you are, you are you of your sin? I'm not asking you to rate your sinfulness. Your wife's already doing that. Well, you are like a 10. Very sinful. See, 10. I'm not asking you to rate your sinfulness. I'm asking you to rate how aware of your sin are you? Are you aware of your sin? I think we need to reclaim this in the church today. You say, well, Chris, how do I do that? Well, let me help you. When's the last time that you've asked God for forgiveness? Is that something you're doing regularly? When's the last time you've asked someone else for forgiveness that you've sinned against? When's the last time that you were doing something and your conscience got pricked and you said, you know what? I need to stop doing this because either this is sinful or I'm about to sin. When is the last time that you didn't react sinfully when someone confronted you? That was to me, that expression was me. I don't like to be confronted. I like confronting other people. Sorry, that sounded weird. Do I like confronting people? No. Let me rephrase that. I would prefer to be the confronter rather than the confronted. Sorry. I I make a living communicating. It's important to communicate clearly. I don't enjoy confronting people. But if I was a choice, I'd rather confront someone else than what? Be confronted. Do I need people to confront me? You can say it. Do I need people to confront me? Yes. And when you do, I don't like it. Why? Because I don't agree with you. I'm not aware of my sin. And the less aware of my sin, what happens in my life? If I don't realize I have the tumor of sin growing in me, will I seek help? No. Take a moment. How aware are you from one to 10? One being the least, 10 being the most. How aware of you are, are you of your sin? I would really encourage you to do the application question number three on the back of your handout because that particularly deals with how do you regain a sense of that. Just would encourage you to go over that on your own. Well, let's go to verse four. Verse four of Psalm 130. You're like, Chris, you're running out of time. I know. I'm picking up the pace. Verse four. Notice between verse three and verse four, we have a grammatical if, but. Verse three, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But thankfully there's forgiveness. That's not the case. With God, there is forgiveness. Exodus 34, six to seven, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Exodus 34, six to seven is one of the most well-known Old Testament passages talking about the loving kindness and forgiveness of God. Israel would use it as part of their worship regularly. They would sing it to the Lord. Some of you are saying, well, look, Chris, you don't understand how much sin I've done. And I'm saying the Lord is is compassionate and gracious. But Chris, I've been doing this for a long time. God's going to be angry with me. The Lord is slow to anger. But Chris, you don't understand. I am really in sin deep. Well, my God is abounding in loving kindness and truth. But Chris, I'm not the only one. There are hundreds, thousands of, of us who have done this sin who keeps loving kindness for what? Thousands. But can he really forgive me my sin and my iniquity? Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? Our God is able to forgive the most vile of sinner, the most heinous of sins. Amen? With forgiveness comes peace and healing, and God is a God of forgiveness. He doesn't keep track of our sins. When we repent of our sins, according to Psalm 103, verse 12, he takes it as far as the what? East is from the west. You know what I love about east and west? They're not fixed points on a map. If we were to say God would remove our sin as far as Los Angeles to New York, well, then I could get a long tape measure, really, really long tape measure, and I could measure how many inches from L.A. to New York. Well, he will forgive your sin and remove them up until from here to here. 
But what's the, what's the deal with east and west? They just keep going and keep going and keep going. What is the psalmist saying? He takes your sin and removes it. It's gone. That's what God does with our sin. And according to Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I will not remember your sins. Does God forget our sins? When it says God's not going to mark them down, does that mean he forgets? Can God forget anything? No, we sang about it. God is omniscient. He is unchangeable. He doesn't forget. So what does he do? When he forgives us, according to Isaiah 43, 25, he chooses not to remember them anymore. God is promising he's choosing to not remember them, to hold them against us. So when God forgives us, he chooses not to mention, not to recount, not to think about our sins ever again. Why? Why is that even possible? Why is there forgiveness with God? Because according to Romans 3, 23 and 26, it's in and through the personal work of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed in Christ's blood through faith. That is why there is forgiveness. When we turn from our sin, acknowledge it to God and say, God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Will you forgive me of my sin? I put my faith and my trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Save me. Hear me. Help me. And so back in verse 4, it says, But there is forgiveness with you. Well, notice the last part. That you may be feared. Thankfulness and gratitude for this forgiveness lead to awe and wonder, which in turn lead to reverence and obedience. You could almost say, so that. But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be feared. This is, there's purpose here. There's a result. When you think of forgiveness, do you think of the result as being fear? No. It's beautiful. Let me explain what this means. Divine pardon should always lead to a deeper reverence for God. Why is that? Reverence, fear of displeasing God. Proverbs 16, 6, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. I'm looking at my sin. I'm in the depths. I'm crying out to God. God, forgive me. What does 1 John 1, 9 say God does? If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God's word says. If I confess my sin, what will God do? Forgive me. I'm forgiven. And in light of that forgiveness, I'm like amazed. I'm in awe that God would forgive a sinner like me. And so I turn around and there's the temptation. There's the sin. There's the, the things that I struggle with. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about what God just did for me. And I'm going, God. I'm amazed that you would forgive me. Why would I ever go back to that? I know what that will bring. It, it's, it's pleasure, it's joy for a moment, and then it leads only to more pain and draws me deeper into the depth of guilt and shame. Why would I go back to that? And I'm thinking about the gospel. I'm thinking about God's forgiveness. And what does it create in me? A reverence and a desire and a holy surrender to God. God, help me. I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. Help me to live pure and right. To do what 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, whether we eat or, 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 sorry, that's the other one. We make it our ambition, whether our home or absent, to what? Be pleasing to him. And 1 Corinthians 10 says what? Whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. That's why it leads to fear. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 17, it's a great New Testament passage that talks about this. I'll just read it for the sake of time. 1 Peter 1, 17 says this. If, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Why do we live righteously? Why do we live and conduct ourselves in fear during our time on earth? Because we know we weren't bought with perishable things, gold, silver, empty religion, futile acts of obedience and subservience to a God that we don't really know. 
That's not what redeemed us. What redeemed us? The precious blood of Christ. And in light of that fact and that reality that I am forgiven, that I can have life and that Jesus died in my place, that motivates holy surrender and obedience to God. Gratitude for God's ever-flowing pardon. Well, that's the cry. Took us a while, didn't it? You're like, yeah, you're, you're out of time. That's the most important part. Then we get to the weight in verses five to six. The psalmist's cry from the depths turns into the weight in verses five to six. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. In his word do I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. What is the psalmist doing here? He's saying, I'm waiting for the Lord. What is he waiting for? He's not waiting for forgiveness. He already received forgiveness. He recognized that. He's not waiting, waiting for some feeling of forgiveness. What does the text say he's waiting for? I don't want to overcomplicate this. What does it say? I wait for the Lord. He's waiting for God. He's waiting for the Lord himself. He's saying, by faith, I wait with my very soul for God and God alone. It's God whom he's offended with the sin, and it's God with whom the fellowship must be restored. So he's trusting completely in God and God's word. That's why he's saying he's waiting in his word. Where is his hope? He's still in the depth. He's been forgiven. Does he feel restored? No, because what happens? Sometimes it takes time as the consequences of our sin get dealt with and addressed. It takes time for us to come out of that. We are forgiven, absolutely, but sometimes coming out of that deep place takes time to undo if we repent and ask for God's forgiveness, we are forgiven whether we feel it or not. And so how do you know that you're forgiven? Because he promised, because God is faithful. If you confess, he will forgive. Do you think David struggled with sleeplessness and anxiety and all of these things, even after Nathan rebuked him? Do you think he, he at times was tempted to feel guilty for what he did with Uriah and just reminded of that story? Weeping, yes. And those are some of the consequences of his sin. But as he worked through those and ran to the God, what was he doing? He's waiting on the Lord, waiting to be restored. And you go back and you reread Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, you're going to see God restore to me the joy of my what? Salvation. Why did he need to pray that after he confessed, after Nathan rebuked him? Because he was still coming out of it. He was still struggling with the guilt and the shame and all of those things. That process of receiving forgiveness, asking for forgiveness. He's waiting on the Lord. You know, the older that I get in my faith, the more I look forward to communion. When I was young, I used to look forward to communion like that much. Because what was communion a time for? Time for me to feel bad about all the bad things I did. And I just sit there and think about it in the middle of the service. Now when I think of communion, you know what I'm reminded of? The blood that was shed and the body that was broken for me. That I don't have to sit here and wallow in sin and sin's consequences. That with Christ there is hope and with God there is forgiveness. Amen? I look forward to communion. It's changed me. And so verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. He repeats it for emphasis, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. It's the picture of a, of a guard standing in guard duty, working all night. What is he looking for? Morning's rays to come through. You see the poetry that's woven through this psalm? It, where is the light in the, de in the deep? It's nowhere. He's looking for it. But what is the soldier waiting for? The morning light. We sang about it. I'd encourage you to read Lamentations 3.23 as Jeremiah the weeping prophet is weeping over the destruction that's befalling Israel and their affliction. And he says, this I remember and it gives me hope. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, they should make a song out of that. Great is thy faithfulness. New mornings, every, every day is a new morning because great is God's faithfulness. Every day is a new day of God's grace, a new day of God's mercy. God's loving kindness endures for us. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. 
I don't like to wait for anybody or anything. And I think it's getting worse, isn't it, parents? Our kids, like, they can't wait for five minutes. Just sit there. I, I can't. They've got to be doing something. Instant gratification. Why is the psalmist waiting? He's waiting for God. He's waiting for that fellowship to be restored. So what do you do while you wait, while you pray? You're praying for God. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, help me to keep my heart and my mind fixed on you, fixed on Christ, thinking about what you did for me. God, help me to fight sin while I'm waiting. Help me to pursue holiness with all my heart, with my passion, with everything in me. God, don't let me turn to the right or the left because if I turn to the right or the left, I'll be trying to fix it myself. I'll be looking for you to fix it or you to fix it or that job or that new opportunity or that new drink or whatever it is to fix it. God, I wait for you. You are my refuge. So while you wait, you pray. You lean on God. You, you immerse yourself in the truth of God's word. You remind yourself about God and his character so that when you get tempted to not wait on the Lord to restore that fellowship, you don't turn to something else. Do we wait for God with this type of urgency, this type of expectancy? Well, then there's the hope in verses seven to eight. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist we saw went from his cry, then to the psalmist's wait, and now we see the psalmist's hope. And up until this point, we've traveled along with the psalmist's personal quest to relieve the guilt of personal sin. He's cried out to God, to re- repentant of his sin. He's, he's found forgiveness with God. Now we see him turn around and publicly encourage and exhort all of Israel to place their hope in the Lord. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's known God's mercy. He longs for others to know it as well. I think this is a simple truth for us to, to walk out of here this morning with. Those who have been most deeply touched by God's forgiveness tend to be those who are most faithful to share this good news of hope with others. Why is it that people who have just gotten saved, you can't shut them up? They can't help but talk about the good news of the gospel. This is where I was and I was in the deep and then God saved me in spite of myself and you need this help. And you're like, man, get away from me. What have you been on? You need to go to a doctor. You need help. And what is that? gospel-infused passion. They can't contain it. It's like, you got to slow down on the energy drinks there, buddy. What is it about that? I don't think we need more evangelism training. I don't think that's the reason. I just don't know the gospel. I think we need to go back and think about our forgiveness. What has God done for you? What has God done to remember his mercy and his grace And as we think about what God has done for us through the gospel, it motivates what the psalmist is doing, going back to Israel and saying, you too can have this hope. Put your hope in him. He will redeem you if you trust in him. And that's what the psalmist is doing with Israel here. And notice, what kind of redemption is it? With him is abundant redemption. What does abundant mean? Overflowing To redeem means to purchase back, to buy. It's as if we are slaves to our sin and God takes the death of his son and exchanges that for us. He redeems us from the pit of hell. And that redemption is what? Abundant. Psalm 86, 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. That's the God we serve. Psalm 86, 5 tells us he's a abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon him. Where is your hope place this morning? Whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ or not, where is your hope? Is it in you? Is it in your religion? Is it in your baptism? Is it in a profession you made when you were a kid? Or is it in the personal work of Jesus Christ right now? Verse 8, he will redeem Israel. How did God redeem Israel? Israel, his people, Matthew 1.21. Matthew 1.21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Where is your hope? If it's anywhere else but Jesus, your hope is misplaced. And not only will you continue to sink further into the deep, but you will continue to remain helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will not only forgive you, but he will redeem you and he will purchase you and your soul from the very pit of hell. Well, every time Shell and I, just in closing, every time we go back to MD Anderson to take an MRI of her brain, what do you think the number one question we have is every time the doctor pulls us into that room and gives us the report? What do you think we want to know? Is it back? Did they get it all? What happens if you leave a little bit of tumor in someone's brain? What happens? It grows back. And every time they take that test, it confirms whether or not they got it all or not. Well, guess what, Christian? You don't ever have to ask Jesus, did you get it all? Jesus, did you get it all? Because guess what? Jesus paid it all. They should make a song out of that. Jesus paid it all, church. He paid it all for you. You don't have to ask that he get it all. He got it all. There is forgiveness in Christ. That's why when we sin, we have the promise that God will forgive us when we confess and forsake our, our sin. Proverbs 28, 13. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that Jesus paid it all. So when you and I experience the symptoms of our sin, when we find ourselves in the depths of despair, it is imperative that we not only correctly diagnose the root of our sin, but that we humbly repent by running to Christ and the cross. For this is hope renewed through God's marvelous forgiveness. May we all cry out to God. May we all wait on God. And may we all put our hope in Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm that encourages us, it reminds us that no matter where we are, no matter what, what state we come to church this morning, that we can find forgiveness and hope in you because you are a God whose very nature, whose word communicates that you are faithful and great is your faithfulness. And so we have the hope and confidence that we can come and confess our sin, that if we forsake it, that we will find compassion, mercy from you, repentance, and all the blessings that that brings, restoration with you and with others, peace, hope, comfort, joy, and delight. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has been on the fence and maybe it is their sin, and maybe they are just tired of sinking deeper and deeper. Would the light of your gospel message shine into their heart this morning and show them that they don't have to stay there and that they can't do it apart from you? Would you give them the power, give them by your grace the ability to turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ? Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. And thank you for sanctifying us that through this forgiveness, there is power in sanctification. Let that be a motivating factor for us that we would live in fear and reverence all the days of our life until Christ comes back. It's in his precious name that we pray, amen.